Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're continuing in the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. And I just want to remind us that this book we come before isn't just another book. Uh, It's not just like a more inspiring book with some good spiritual lessons, uh, but it's God's word given to us. It's him revealing who he is to us. Uh, it's, It's how we can know the living God. So church, hear from the word of God says this, starting in verse 16, uh, for context, we'll be covering verses 19 through 26 this morning, but want to get a bit of the uh, sense of the conversation. Jesus just offered the woman at the well water, living water, uh, that if she drank of it, she would never thirst again. She says, give me that water. And she says this, Jesus says this in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, right now as we come to your word, we come underneath your word. We need to hear what you're like. We need you to reveal yourself and Christ to us. So Holy Spirit, would you please give the light to be able to see the truth of this living and active word. Lord, some of us come into church today limping. Um, I ask that you would heal us. Some of us are so tired and We need strength from you. Lord, some of us us are still dead in our sins and we need to be made alive in you. For all of us, God, we just come to you and say, you're the one we need. To whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so God, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that we can trust your word, that you are not a man that you should lie, nor a son of man that you should change your mind but that you have spoken through your word. Would you give us the good news of Jesus Christ this morning and would it lead to worship of you? In Christ's name and according to his work and because of it, amen. 
In 2015, I uh, had the opportunity to go on the trip of a lifetime. I had graduated college the year before, and uh, some hard things had happened, and I was at a place in life, uh, just for a visual, uh, maybe this will give you a sense that I had grown out what I call like a depression beard, um, so I just had this ball of a beard on my face. Uh, the reasoning with that was some stuff had happened, and I remember having the thought, I just want to go to the middle of the woods as far away from everyone else as possible and just grow out a beard. And I realized I can't do that because I just got a job. So I'll make the woods come to me and hence the beard. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at in life. But a year has passed. Uh, I'm starting to heal up, doing pretty good. And one of my friends from college calls me up and he says, Dared, we need to go to New Zealand. And I'm like listening to him like, I don't know about it. He's like, oh, dude, come on. We got to see where Lord of the Rings was filmed. We're going to go to Hobbiton. We're going to go to the most beautiful stuff you've ever seen. And so I said, all right, I'm in. I decide to go with him. Now, my friend, maybe you can tell by my impersonation of him, is an intense guy. Uh, he was a college athlete, ran cross country. And so he was in great shape. And one of the things he wanted to do was one of uh, what's called the Great Walks in New Zealand. Uh, and they call it a walk, but it's a three-day hike. And up and down through a bunch of terrain. And it's honestly not the hardest hike in the world. Uh, but I was personally not in the shape to do a three-day hike that he was. So he would just be trekking along like a half mile in front of me. I, my knees would just be hurting. I'm just sore all over. But it was beautiful. And it was, it was so amazing. But I think the apex moment of my trip to New Zealand took place on the hike as we were going past a point called Mount McKinnon Pass. And so it's just a beautiful outlook. We've been through uh, just green forests, and now we've just gone through some snow, and we're at this outlook. And just see some snow-capped hills, see waterfalls all over the place. And I'm so tired. And my knees, it just felt like bone on bone during the hike. Maybe you've been there. Uh, but we're going through it, and there's just a stream of water that's running from the very top, highest point that we got to. And I just went next to the stream of water. And I cut my hands, and I just took a drink of that water. And something happened in me as I drank the freshest, most clean water I had ever drunk in the place that I think is certifiably the least affected by the fall in the world. As I drank it, it went and it just satisfied my heart. And then I did something where I cut my hands and I just splashed it over my face and something happens that it's an experience. If you don't have a beard, you might never experience in life. But <laughs> the water just holds in your beard. And it just feels like the good feeling of splashing water on your face, but it stays. And something happened in that moment where drinking that water gave way, not because of something I willed, but it just gave way to worship. To saying, oh, thank you, God. This is the greatest thing I've ever tasted in the most beautiful place. Now, the reason I bring this up 
is because our conversation that we study today, Jesus between the Samaritan woman, it takes a turn from what we saw last week in Jesus offering her living water, better, better than New Zealand water. And guys, still to this day, you know how Trader Joe's sells the New Zealand water? We, my wife and I still buy that, and then we refill it somewhere else because uh, it's a little pricey. But, uh, and I just think about that water every time I have a drink of it, but the water Christ is offering, it's better than that. But in the same way, taking a drink of fresh water can lead to worship. This conversation naturally turns to worship. As Jesus brings up some hard things and the woman brings a question to him, we see it move from living water into the question of what is true worship. And the very first thing we see in our text is that true worship is about eternal matters, not temporary matters. As we recall, after Jesus, uh, after Jesus telling the Samaritan woman about the uh, kind of living water he has to offer, he has lovingly called out her sin. And if you remember, Jesus loves this woman too much to not address what is killing her in life. And so he, as one pastor put it, it's as if she had an ulcer. And he, in love, is willing to press in on that ulcer. Not because he hates her, but the exact opposite, because he loves her. And he says, this is here. This needs to be dealt with. And then she responds in verse 19. And she says something uh, that could be taken one of two ways. The first way is like in the, maybe the biggest understatement of all time, where the woman uh, says about her own life, yeah, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I know you've had five. And the one you're living with right now, he's not your husband. She says, I perceive you are a prophet. Now, uh, it could be she's saying that, that it's an understatement of a lifetime, but there's actually another way we could understand this. And that is, this woman is a Samaritan. And as we're going to talk about in just a moment, the Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Bible. Okay? They didn't believe in the rest. They believed in Genesis, Exodus, Vicus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the books of Moses. As she says this to him, the Samaritans have, are awaiting the prophet that Deuteronomy talks about, one who will come like Moses, who will uh, preach to the people something that they need to hear. And so it's possible here that she's saying, could this man be more than just a prophet? Could he be the prophet? We're not entirely sure exactly what she's saying, but uh, the bare minimum is she is affirming something about Jesus's identity. You're right. You're a prophet. She doesn't have any more excuses. And after saying you're a prophet, she immediately goes into the greatest point of divide between the Samaritans and the Jews. It's a religious debate that they've been having. And it, the substance of it is this question, who are the true worshipers of God? What's the answer to our religious debate? She wants to know who's right. Now, some have said here in bringing up the question, uh, that will look, the question of John 4 verse 20, where she says this, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Some say that she's deflecting away from her sin. She's like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Now, that, there may be a piece of that in this, like 
who among us, when someone starts talking about our stuff, like we're like, yeah, I'd like to stay on this point of this topic of conversation. There may be some of that in her, but it seems from her subsequent actions, what she's going to do, that she's actually repenting and repentant and has a true and genuine question. She's asking, what is true worship? And who are the true worshipers? And the world at this time is insanely polarized, okay? There's us and them. And people aren't always the most rational when they're talking about contentious issues at this point in time. Samaritans hate the Jews. They don't get along. And she's asking Jesus, who's right? So what's going on here? We need a little bit of context to understand her question. And as we uh, remember from last week, the Samaritans were a racially mixed group of partly Jewish and partly Gentile ancestry. And they were disdained since they were uh, part Jewish and part Gentile. They, re they were rejected by both the Jews and the Gentiles. No one wanted to claim the Samaritans as their own. Not only that, but we know from the Old Testament that in 722 BC, the king of Assyria, a terrible and great, I just mean that powerful leader, king, brought in foreigners to settle in the land of Samaria. And many of those settlers, those foreign people, intermarried with the Jews, and then we have the Samaritans. So there's an ethnic thing going on. There's a conquest thing with bad history going on. Now the Samaritans, since they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, they, uh, they said the place we should worship is Mount Gezerim near Shechem. Uh, the Jews, on the other hand, they hold all 39 books of uh, our Old Testament to be the word of God. That's their Bible. They said, no, because of these 39 books, we know that David built the temple in Jerusalem. And so the big debate is where is the true temple? Mount Gezerim near Shechem or Jerusalem? And you might be asking, why Shechem? Why that place? Well, in the book of Genesis, both Abraham and Jacob established altars at that place, and it seemed to be a holy site. So her question to Jesus is, who's right? And perhaps the question seems unimportant to us, but still today, billions of people, billions of people think that some places and some locations are holier than other places. Jews go on uh, trip to the Holy Land of Israel for a religious experience. Muslims are required to go on a Hajj pilgrimage to sacred sites. Even some misguided, perhaps some nominal Christians think they can gain favor by going to places where saints lived or did supposed miracles in those places. This is still an issue today. Still one of the most hotly contentious divided areas in the world is Jerusalem. Her question is, who's right? And we need to remember, too, at this point in time, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. Jesus has pointed out her sin. And so the question is, what should she do now? Should she go to Jerusalem? Is she good staying here? How is she supposed to worship? Jesus answers her, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus says to her, woman, soon your question won't even matter. Truly, the most important thing about worship is not location. It's neither this mountain nor that mountain. Jesus says there's a rapidly approaching hour that will render this temporal debate as pressing as it is one day obsolete and ultimately unimportant. Now, we should also notice that Jesus, he does answer her question. Subtly, he says this, you don't know what you worship. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He's teaching us right here that the Holy Scriptures, they are true and they do instruct us. Jerusalem is the right place of the temple, but he doesn't wax on and on because this isn't solely about Jerusalem. He doesn't press his point on her. He says, you know what, soon that won't matter. He maintains that salvation is from the Jews. But as he opens up salvation to this Gentile woman through the Jews. And so the woman's temporary concern over a contentious question was her first barrier to true worship. And to apply this to our lives, I want to ask us what questions what contentious temporary questions might block us from true worship with God's people? I could think of a few. I can think of political, relational, and circumstantial things that could block us from worship with God's people. First, political. Listen, one politician may be better than another. That's like almost certainly true and neither of them are the Messiah. And so, can you worship alongside someone with whom you disagree politically? Can you do that? And hey, there, there are some political, some issues that fall into the realm of politics that you can draw a straight line from Scripture to. But there are other things, as Andy Nacelli helpfully puts it, that are more jagged line issues that are policy things. What's the best way to implement that? And two people can, two Christians can honestly disagree about it. And one's probably right. And the other is probably wrong. But can you worship next to someone with whom you disagree? Because one day there is coming a politician who will rule perfectly. And his name's Jesus. And we won't see one until that day. Secondly, relationally. Does relational drama with a brother or sister in Christ inhibit you from worshiping? As you come into church, is there anyone you're thinking, I hope I don't see them. I hope they keep coming to first service. Do you maybe sit on one side of the church because you know they sit on that side? Is there, is there relational drama that you know one day will be resolved, that you are truly brothers and sisters in Christ, that is blocking you from worshiping God. 
If so, we need to deal with that today. Thirdly, is there anything of a temporary nature? I'm not talking moral disobedience. Remember, Jesus addressed her sin. It's not okay you're sleeping with someone who's not your husband. And Jesus still speaks to us that way this day. We're not talking about not dealing with disobedience. What we're talking about are temporary things, not of a moral nature, that's blocking us from worshiping God. Worship isn't about our temporary circumstances. The financial hardships we find ourselves in. Church drama. Relational hurts. Rather, worship is about recognizing in the midst of circumstances what is and will be eternally true. And living in light of that. Like there's coming a day where all drama will be over. Praise God. But that's not yet, and so we need to learn how to live through our temporary circumstances in light of the eternal truth. Like, let me, let's do a thought experiment together. If you knew you were to be with Christ tomorrow, what would you feel foolish about, about that you quarrel over today? What, what would you just, as you saw the face of your Savior, say, I'm sorry. Whatever that is, we need to surrender that to God. I want to draw your attention to verse 21. Jesus says to the woman, you will worship the Father. He's speaking in the plural to her. What he's saying is, you all, you Samaritans, will worship the Father. This is expressing the truth that we worship to God the Father because he's adopted us into his family. He chose us out of this world to bring us into this family, knowing everything about us, all our predispositions, all our neediness. He brought us into his family, and so we worship him. He brought us into his family through the finished work of his son. And how beautiful is it that Jesus says to this woman, who probably for most of her life, to put it bluntly, had been viewed as a half-breed. He says to her, you will worship the Father. He's going to be your Father. This is going to happen. It's from the Jews, but it's not only for the Jews. You're not a half-breed. You're my daughter, and you're going to worship me. This truth hints out what Jesus makes plain in verse 23. And that is this, that true worship is always a response. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus in verse 21, he said that the hour is coming and now just a few verses later, he says, he declares, and it's here. It was coming and now it's here when worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus is declaring to draw it out, make it really plain. He's declaring that there's a coming time 
and the coming time is indeed now, that makes all questions about ceremonial worship and location obsolete. He says, when the hour comes, then something will happen. Namely, true worshipers will worship the Father. Now, the key to understand what Jesus means by all of this is understanding the use of the word hour in John's gospel. D.A. Carson, probably the uh, best living scholar on the gospel of John, says this about the use of the word hour. Hour, when unqualified, always points in John's gospel to the hour of Jesus' cross, resurrection, and exaltation, or to events related to Jesus' passion and exaltation. Perhaps you remember some of the verses from the Gospel of John where the Lord Jesus says, my hour is approaching. My hour has come. The appointed hour. He's talking about his death and resurrection on the cross. From his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane to his death on the cross to his victorious resurrection from the dead and his ascension. His hour has come. An hour comes and then worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. And so this means worship is always a response to that truth. Because the hour has come, we worship the Father. Let me ask you this. See if you relate at all. Have you ever come into church, shown up, you get your seat, uh, the music is playing, you go to open your mouth, and all you can think is, I am so unworthy. I am such a failure. <laughs> Who, why would God want to hear my voice? Maybe, maybe give me a couple weeks of good living and then I can worship God. Or have you ever felt like, man, I know my need for God, and so I really need God to show up in my life, so I'm going to worship so hard today. Like, I'm going to crank it to 11, I'm going to sing louder, whatever I don't normally do, I'll do this time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it all to God. So maybe God will bless me. Maybe he'll hear me. I'll do enough so maybe God will draw near to me seeing my fervency for him. If that's you, I have incredible news for you. Worship is not about what you bring to God. Worship is not about trying to make God love you more. Worship is a response to something God has done. This is actually why, if you're here at the beginning of the service, we start every, every gathering with the call to worship. The call to worship isn't us calling out to God, but it's actually God calling his people to worship him. All of the Christian life is a response to God and what he has done and what he has revealed, and what he has accomplished. We respond to him. So as we hear a call to worship, we realize it's not us working something up enough so God would hear us, but 
do you remember what God has already done? And we get to worship. We get to worship because of what he has done. This also means for us Christians, because the hour has come, and because that hour means the death, the suffering, the sin-atoning crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, because the hour has come, we are people of the cross. It means that we sing primarily because we've been redeemed by God. We sing not first because our circumstances are pleasant, but because our sins are forgiven. And it means we praise God from whom all blessings flow. And chiefly among those blessings is the blessing that he's washed us and he's robed us with Christ's righteousness. That's why we get to sing to God. So I want to ask you, do you understand that worship is a response? Do you know that? How incredibly freeing is that? That's not about what you bring to God, but it's a response to what he in Christ has done that we accept by sheer faith. It means because Christ's hour has come, the hour we now look forward to isn't, isn't the hour of our judgment for our sins, but the hour when we will be fully redeemed by him. So if worship is response, that naturally leads to the question, how shall we worship? Like, what does true worship consist of? Well, true worship consists of two things. It's spiritual worship and truthful worship. Lord Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus tells us here that true worship must be in spirit and truth. And he grounds this in this truth about God, that God is spirit. And since God is spirit, because he's spirit, worship must be in spirit and truth. Now, this means not that God is a spirit, uh, but rather it's it'd be best understood by contrasting the spirit against the flesh, okay? God is spirit. Now, all things of the flesh can be perceived by our five senses. All things of the flesh can be perceived, discovered by our five senses. But God transcends these things. He created these things. He himself is not flesh, and it's true that if God never revealed himself to us through his word or through Christ, who is the word become flesh, we would not know him. We wouldn't discover anything about him to the extent of saving knowledge about him unless he told us about himself. The flesh is of no help, but we need the spirit. He is the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light. And so because of that, because God is not flesh, because he is spirit, our worship can't be according to the flesh. It can't be appealing only to our senses. It can't be only external. 
but worship must well up from within. It must, as, as the, it must be not a willing that we produce in ourselves through the flesh, but something that comes from the spirit we have. Or another way to say it is it must be from the soul. I think that gives a great understanding of it. If you uh, can understand it that way, it comes from the soul, from the depth of who we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is where true worship comes from. It's why we all know that if your heart isn't right, it doesn't matter what you do with raised hands. If your heart isn't right, it doesn't matter if you sing perfectly on key. It's a matter of the heart. We must worship in spirit and truth. And so true worship must be those two things. Now let's talk about both of them. And first we'll talk about spiritual worship. This is once again to say it's not simply according to the flesh. Okay? You can have a wild experience at a concert. Can we all agree that? You can go to a Coldplay concert and feel things. If you don't like Coldplay, maybe you'd be feeling some things that I'm not talking about. But uh, we all know that music and lights and sensory experiences can make us feel stuff, right? But that's not what we're talking about here. Not just simply emotion. What we're talking about is since this kind of worship needs to be spiritual, it can't be just external. This, this is why we know we can worship in different styles. That worship isn't limited to one kind of style. Okay, so we can, we can be all right, and you guys all know this, but we could be all right like if we left the lights on during worship. We could still worship God. And we can worship God with the lights off. It's not primarily about a stylistic thing. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth, welling up from the heart. It means that if a guitar player is playing and he breaks a string, it might momentarily obviously stop us a little bit, but we could go on worshiping, even with imperfect music. We should aim to uh, be excellent in different things, but worship ultimately isn't just about the external stuff. It's in spirit. And so true, we can say true, genuine worship, it does involve emotion flowing from the heart of a person. And true worship must be truthful worship. Our worship must be according to the truth that God has revealed about himself. God has told us what he's like and how to worship him. And so we need to do that. We need to listen to it. Uh, to contrast this with a wrong way of worshiping God, think of, think of one worship service that the Israelites put on. Let me remind you of what it was like. They all decided and came up with a great plan for how to worship God. And all the people, they like invested a lot of money into this. And it seems like they got like a whole entire crowd going. And they even created something for God, like as a picture to God and of God. And what they made was a golden calf. And they put on the side of this golden calf to Yahweh. And it drew a lot of people. They dedicated it to God. They were sincere. They drew people. So like, what's the problem? Well, the problem is 
God never told them to make a golden calf and bow down to it in worship. The truth is they were sincere in the way that they wanted to express themselves to God, but they were wrong in their sincerity. When we don't start from a true concept of who God is as he's revealed himself to us in his word, what comes out is always idolatry. When we don't start with the truth of who God says he is and worship him how he said to worship him, we end up making God in our own image. And so worship is not simply about sincerity. Though it is that, it must be truthful as well. And so this means like our worship songs, they need to not just be sincere and melodic, but they should be beautiful and true as well in the thoughts and messages they convey. And since we know that worship is not simply singing, but as the apostle Paul says in Romans 12, that we in light of all God has done should offer our whole bodies as living sacrifices as our spiritual act of worship, we know that worship is our whole life. And so if worship is spiritual, we must worship in spirit and in truth, then we too, in the places we find ourselves, we must be a truthful people. At work, are you honest about the hours you work? Do you fudge numbers? Do you say things straightforwardly in an understandable way? Our worship to God transcends just this Sunday morning gathering and goes to our whole life. Any way we find ourselves not living for God truly in spirit and truth before him, we need to repent of, we need to change in. And these two things, truthful worship and spiritual worship, they're indivisible. And we need to be aware about pitting these two things against each other. We all tend to one side or the other. Some of us uh, just have hearts that are, are like, I, I'm sincere and I don't really, does it, is it true? Well, I don't really care like that much. Like God knows my heart. And some of us are like, doesn't matter what my heart feels. I know what is true and I will stay to it till the day I die even if I never feel something in the, entire, in the rest of my entire life. We need to be aware of this. We both probably lean to one side or the other. If we worship in spirit and not truth, it's simply emotionalism. It's fanaticism. You may have a terrific experience, but you'll be left unchanged because the truth of God hasn't bared down on your soul. But if we worship in spirit and not truth, that's dead orthodoxy. You prove perhaps that you haven't actually drunk deeply of the truth because this truth is living water. It's meant to give its way to worship and praise of God. It moves our hearts to thankfulness. Do you show the gospel is the good news you profess? Now, I want to just encourage you, perhaps you're someone who you do feel like I lean more towards just all I care about is the, is the sincerity of my own heart. I have a friend uh, who maybe they would say they lean that way. And I've seen them over the last year dive into God's word, read through the entire thing, and it has only deepened their love and worship of God. The more you find out about God, 
won't be the less passionate you are for him, but the more truly passionate and love you will have for him. So I would encourage you to learn more about God because it's in discovering more about him that we actually go into deeper love for him. And for those of us who uh, may be tempted to worship in truth and not in spirit, I want to ask a question that may seem a little odd. Are you a critical person? God's gifted some of us uh, to be able to see things really well. We immediately know when something's kind of off. But would you be known by your friends, by your family as a critical person? Just coming down on others because of the way that they're off. Known more for your truth than for your love. If so, I want you to remember the Lord Jesus and how he handled things with this woman. Now, the woman was wrong. You're not supposed to worship in she- near Shechem. And Jesus, he, he revealed that, but he didn't say, it's Jerusalem. He didn't roll his eyes. He didn't say, he didn't sigh. He didn't raise his eyebrows. He didn't look at a friend that would also know the answer. He didn't say, have you never read the Bible? No, he loved her. Because of the kind of presence he had around her, she stayed near him. For those of us who tend to be critical, remember the Lord Jesus and how he handles issues when people are mistaken on things. We have always, Christians have always been people of the book and people of song. We've always been people of head and people of heart. And so what God's joined together, don't let any man tear apart. Amen? We are to be people who worship God in spirit and truth. And the last thing we see in our text is that true worship is about the greatest reality. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Those two words mean the same thing. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. It means anointed one, the Savior. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, let's remember what's happened in this short conversation with Jesus. The woman must be overwhelmed at this point. First, a Jewish man shows up at the well and asks her for a drink of water. She gives him the drink of water, and then he offers her living water. That if she drinks of that, she'll never thirst again. And so she gives in, and she wants it, and then he calls out her sin and her messed up life. And so she gives a half truth, and then he reveals the whole truth. And so then she asks a religious question of the day. And he says that there's coming an hour that is actually now here where that doesn't really matter, and she will worship God as her father in spirit and in truth. This has all happened in this short conversation. I can imagine that she's exasperated at this point. Perhaps so she's also hopeful. And she says, I know Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll, he'll tell us all things. She says, yeah, maybe one day all these things will be sorted out. And maybe, perhaps, she's thinking in her head, could this 
man be more than just a prophet? Could he be the prophet? And Jesus looks at her and says, I who am speaking to you am he. And in the Greek, that phrase actually leaves that last word off. Literally, he says, I who speak to you am. Jesus says to the woman, I've offered you water. I know about your sin. The hour is here when you will worship the Father. The the Messiah you speak of, I am. Jesus is identifying himself with the name God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. If you remember that story, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And he says, you say I am sent you. I am who I shall be. This is a statement, a name of the eternal truth of the existence of our God who has always been. All the great questions of humanity, how can a sinful person come before a holy God? How can can any one person make a way for all people and be the savior of all people? All the great questions converge on the greatest reality who is standing present in front of this woman. The word made flesh and he's calling her to worship him. And so Jesus still this day calls men and women trapped in their shame who give half-truths about what's going on He doesn't dismiss their sin. He doesn't wink at it. But he also doesn't up and leave. He sits with them. And he says, I can give you living water. You drink of this and you will never thirst again. Christ isn't afraid of our sin. He's not afraid of your shame. But he calls to you today to give you living water. And so wherever we find ourselves in the wrong against God, repent that times of refreshing may come. And in response to God and what he has done, that Christ died on the cross for your sin and for the sin you've honestly lied to others about, confess it before him and be forgiven. And in response to what he has done, let us worship him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's too good of news that you would forgive us, that you would would approach sinful men and sinful women and call them to yourself, that through your work you would adopt us into your family. And so, Lord, we know that... No song we could sing could ever repay you, but you're not after repayment from us. And so, Lord, we freely just offer you all that we are, our worship, not only in song, but in word, indeed, indeed our whole entire lives. Love so amazing, so divine, 
demands my soul, my life, my all. So God, would you free us? For those of us who thought worship was about making you love us, would you put our eyes on that cross and that empty grave? For those of us who have known it for a while and we thought it's time to move on to another thing, would you call us back? Lord, for anyone in here who feels the conviction of sin, would they confess it to you and would they confess it to someone in this room? Because you have promised you will finish the good work you have begun in us. You will not leave us. You will make us like Christ. So Lord, would we in turn be truthful and offer you true and spiritual worship now, flowing from a heart that has been made new by you. Pray this all in the name and because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.